Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at a section from verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3. It says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner person, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank You that You are able. We thank You that You are not only able to meet our physical needs, not only able to help us in times of financial crisis, in times when our health is failing. Lord, You're also able to help us with our greater need, which is our spiritual need. Lord, we thank you that even though we, we have cold hearts and slow hearts, that your love is so great that you have died for us, and now through your Spirit, you're drawing us to yourself. And so, God, we come to you this morning and studying your word, not because we are anything, but because we know that you are able to open up our hearts and to help us to know Christ more. And so, with Paul, we ask this morning, help us to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is Christ's love for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, one of my uh, favorite hobbies <clears throat> used to be uh, mountain climbing. I say used to be because, well, now I have kids, and um, I don't really have um, a life, uh, per se. <laughs> I used to do fun things, but not really anymore. Um, I, I'm, I'm hoping someday my kids will get older and we can do things that I, I used to like to do. But, you know, for now, it, it's fine and kids are great. Uh, but I used to love mountain climbing. I grew up out in Las Vegas and I used to climb the rocky crags around the Vegas Valley. And then when I moved out here and, and met my wife, we go up to the White Mountains in New Hampshire. If you've hiked there, I love hiking the White Mountains. I've backpacked the Presidentials and done some of the other mountains up there. Uh, it, it's just so beautiful. And, and if you've ever been mountain climbing or backpacking, you know that the best part is summiting the mountain. That's the best part. I mean, the whole thing is great. But when you finally get to the top and you breathe the fresh air, after you've been climbing all day, you start in the foothills among the hardwoods, and then you get up on the steep side of the mountain and it turns to firs and pines. And then, then you're near the tree line and, and the little scrubby firs get real short and tight together so you couldn't even work your way in them and the air becomes very still and it's hot and you suddenly break out above tree line and the air is fresh and you can start seeing where you've been and then you finally reach the summit and it's like you're on top of the world. Uh, you know, that's the best part. And you sit down, you have lunch there, you, you get a drink, you take pictures. Well, this morning, we are about to summit 
the book of Ephesians. Here at the end of chapter 3, this is the, the summit of the whole book. This is the high point. This is the climax of the book. Paul has been leading us on a journey up Mount Ephesus, Mount Ephesians, whatever you want to call it. They've been explaining to us the blessings we have in Christ. In fact, if you just uh, keep your finger here in our text and look back at Ephesians 1, verse 3. This is where we started our journey. This was the trailhead. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as we said, that verse is kind of a, uh, a heading for the first three chapters of the book. It's a summary of everything Paul's going to talk about. Paul, in the next three chapters then, leads us on a hike. And he leads us on this trail as we explore all of the blessings that Jesus Christ has given us. And so chapters 1, 2, 3, we looked at last week, looking at all the blessings of Christ until finally we get to the summit in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Now after this, chapter 4, we start going down the mountain. We start going into the, the valley of practical Christian living based upon the things we've seen from the summit. But we're not there yet. First, first we've got to hang out in the summit. We'll go down in a couple of weeks and we'll start getting into chapter 4 through 6. You're going to find chapters 4 through 6 incredibly practical and incredibly applicable to daily living. I mean, it's a no-brainer. This stuff just preaches itself. But uh, for now, though, we've got to stop in the summit. We've got to have lunch here. We've got to take a breather and, and just see one last time the greatness of what Christ has done for us. And what is the summit of the mountain? What is there at the top of the mountain where heaven touches earth? What is it but the love of Jesus Christ for sinners like me? That's the peak of the mountain. What is the peak of the mountain? It's verse 17, about halfway through. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's a lovely little oxymoron there. To know the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The summit of, of everything Paul's been trying to teach us is sort of summed up in the love of Christ. That's the high point the love of Christ for us. Now, maybe we should stop and ask the question, why is it so important that we grasp the love of Christ? I mean, you know, maybe it's kind of an you know, obvious question, but really, I mean, why though? We should stop and analyze this. Why should we understand the love of Christ? I mean, why is this what Paul prays for? Paul could have prayed for a lot of things. He could have prayed for the financial well-being of his people. He could have prayed for health for his people. He could have prayed for world peace. I figure Paul, I mean, he's an apostle. He probably would have got it. So he could have prayed for all these things. But what does he pray for instead? He says, God, I want them to grasp the love of Jesus. That's the whole climax of everything he's been trying to say in the first three chapters. God, let them know the love of Christ. So, so why is that so important? That, that would be the, the summit of Paul's argument, the summit of his mountain. Well, let me just suggest uh, three reasons why he prays this from the text. The first reason is that the love of Jesus is the source and sum of Christianity. It's the source and sum. It's the beginning of why I became a Christian, the love of Jesus is. And the love of Jesus is the essence of living as a Christian. 
Uh, look at uh, chapter 17. He says, uh, sorry, ch- verse, chapter 3, verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being, here we go, rooted and established in love. So uh, the love of Christ is the source of my Christian faith. We will begin as Christians being rooted and established in love. Here Paul takes an agricultural image, rooted, and he meshes it with an architectural image, uh, grounded or, or founded is the idea, and he sort of mixes his metaphors as he's sort of want to do in his text. Uh, but, but anyway, um, we, we begin with the love of Christ. The reason I became a Christian was not because I understood the holiness of God. The reason I became a Christian was not because I understood the justice of God or the purity of God, because all those things just make me know that I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. The reason I became a Christian was then after that I found out about the love of Christ for me. And when I found out that he loves me despite who I am, despite my sin, then I said, oh, what a great God this is. And that's when I became a believer. So the Christian life begins with an apprehension of Christ's love. And then the Christian life continues in love. That's how you grow as a Christian, by entering into a love relationship with Christ. I had some friends over last night for dinner, and we talked about this briefly. And uh, we're talking about a friend that uh, they've been trying to share Christ with. And they said, you know, this person, this person thinks that, that they have to have some factual knowledge to become a Christian if they could just grasp that, that little last fact. And it's like, well, yeah, you have to have facts, but Christianity is a relationship. It's not just a list of doctrines on a piece of paper, though there are doctrines on pieces of paper in Christianity. Christianity is a living relationship with the living Christ. And so the way I grow as a Christian is through love. As I learn that Christ loves me, as, I, as I'm amazed at his great love for me, I don't want to sin because I love him. And as I know that Christ loves me and that as I'm just saying, he is able, well, then I'm not going to get freaked out when I come to difficult situations in life, or maybe not as freaked out, I'm going to be quick to pray and say, God, I don't understand what's happening to me, but I believe that you love me. And so I'm going to make it. I'm going to hold on to that love that I have in you. So it's the love of Christ that is the source and the sum of the entirety of Christianity. And then there's a second reason that Paul prays that we should grasp the love of Christ. Not only is it the source and sum of Christianity, but it's the birthright of every Christian. Every Christian should and can know the love of Christ for them. As it says there in uh, verse 17, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, here we go, together with all the saints. With all the saints. This isn't a prayer just for the elite. To know the love of Christ isn't just for mystics or for pastors and priests and nuns and monks who cloister themselves away and and have some special knowledge about God because they're especially close to Him. This is for every Christian. Every Christian should and can have an intimate knowledge of Christ's love for them that grows over time. In fact, if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, which is this insert in your bulletin, there's a little quote on the front by J.I. Packer from his classic work, Knowing God, which you should all read. Packer says, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. And the New Testament sets forth this knowledge, not as the privilege of a favored few, but as a normal part of ordinary Christian experience, something to which only the spiritually unhealthy and malformed 
will be strangers. To be a Christian is to grow in your knowledge of Jesus' love for you. And then a third reason that Paul prays that we should know the love of Christ. One, uh, the love of Christ is the source and sum of Christianity. Number two, it's the birthright of every believer. And then the third reason he gives there at the end of verse 19 is that the love of Christ is how we come to the fullness of what God has for us. The love of Christ is the doorway through which we experience the fullness of God and everything he has for us. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, I want you to grasp the love of Christ so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you want to to be emptied of of pride and self-orientation and greed and all the other things that corrupt our hearts? And do you want to be filled up with God instead? Well, the secret is to know the love of Christ for you. Do you want to be free from anxiety and worry and, and stress and, and, and being bound up in fear? Well, the key is to know the love of Christ for you so that you might be filled up instead with God instead of with fear. Do you want to let go of hurts and wounds and um, scars that you received in your past and instead be filled up with God in place of those scars? Well, the secret is know the love of Christ for you. The love of Christ for us is the doorway through which we are filled up with everything that God has for us. The love of Christ is the key mark of times of revival. Uh, this little book, if you haven't read this book, you've got to get this book, you've got to read it, reread it. It's called Pentecost Today by Ian H. Murray. Uh, yes, that's right. A Baptist is recommending to you the book Pentecost Today. Uh, no, it, it's really an awesome book. It's, um, it's about revival. And if you haven't read any books on revival and you want to read one book about revival, this is the book you must read, you know, ASAP. It reads well. It's a great book. Pentecost today. And one of his thesis in the book is that a key mark of revival is a knowledge of God's love for us. That during times of the outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people, there is a great new apprehension of how much God loves us. And that during times of revival, believers understand how much God loves them, and as a result, they press on in their faith in greater and fresher ways. And unbelievers find out that Jesus that God so loved the world, and unbelievers become Christians because they're overwhelmed with God's love for them. The key mark of revival is, is understanding the love of Christ. See, I, I think we're kind of mixed up on this today. We, we often look at the key mark of revival as sort of uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, like speaking in tongues, or being slain in the Spirit, or uh, in some cases it gets very strange, barking like dogs and growling like lions. Look, this is not the key mark of revival. Some revivals have some manifestations, some don't. But every revival is centered on the love of Christ. Because when real revival happens, the focus is not on the Holy Spirit. When real revival happens, the focus is not on the Holy Spirit. When real revival happens, the Holy Spirit comes upon people to focus them on Jesus Christ. And we start to see the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit is very involved in revival, but not to focus on the Spirit. He's just the, the, the means through which we focus on Christ's love for us. And so if we want revival here on the South Shore, we need to see the love of Christ. We need to be filled up with all the fullness of God, not just individually, but as a community in times of revival. So for all those reasons and more that we could list, We need to know the love of Christ. For all those reasons, that's the summit of the mountain. So what I want to do is just hang out at the summit for a while. That's it.
I, I want to sit here, I want to have lunch, I want to take pictures, I want to take a deep breath before we go on with the book of Ephesians. And, and just for my own sake, let, let alone for yours, I, I am dying to know more of Christ's love for me. I, I want a bigger vision of Christ's love. I want a panoramic view of Christ's love. And to do that, I've got to hang out here on the summit for a little bit and just try to take it all in. And so uh, that's what we're going to do for the next couple Sundays. In particular, I want to look at this idea of the width, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. And so if you look at your sermon notes, here's this little schedule, a mini-series. Today I want to look at the width of Christ's love. And then next Sunday, Palm Sunday, I want to look at the length and the height of Christ's love. And then during our Monday Thursday communion service, we'll look at the depth of Christ's love. But today, the width of Christ's love. That's what we're going to close with here. How wide is the love of Christ? What is its breadth? When you stand on the summit and you look from, one, from the east to the west, how far out does the love of Christ stretch? How broad is it? Well, one way to, to understand the love of Christ uh, and, and how wide it is, is to contrast it with something else. And to look at something else that's wide and to see which is wider, Christ's love or this other thing. And, and the thing I'd like to contrast Christ's love with this morning is um, uh, the width of our sin. I would like to lay end to end the width of Christ's love and I'd like to measure it against the width of our sin. Because the reality is our sin is wide. Our sin does stretch out wide before God. When God looks down from heaven at the human race, I mean, our sin is just spread out before Him. Maybe some of you are skiers or snowboarders. Uh, you know, if you've ever skied or snowboarded, there's a whole lingo that goes along with that sport. It's not just the clothes and the, uh, the culture. but th There is a whole language you have to learn. There's a jargon that's attached to it. And uh, I'll give you a little test here. You know, if, if you're riding up the ski lift and you see some person skiing down beneath you and they crash, and one ski goes over here, and the poles go over there, and the glasses fly over there, and the hat's behind them, and they're just laying spread eagle on. What, what is the a proper thing to yell at them from the ski lift? Yard sale. That's correct. <laughs> That's right. If the proper etiquette on the ski slope is to yell, yard sale, because, you know, it looks like a yard sale. I mean, you know, they got things over here, and skis over there. That's, you know, and if you don't do that, it's really a faux pas. You need to yell that at somebody when they crash. Uh, <laughs> and when you do a yard sale, all your stuff is just like, vroom, spread out wide. And, and I, I was thinking about that. It's such a picture of, of our sin. It's just yard sale before God. The human race, morally speaking, is a yard sale down through our history. Human beings have advanced technologically over the centuries. We have advanced medically. We've advanced in our ability to transport people. We're no longer on mules. I mean, we're flying supersonic jets. I mean, it's amazing things that human beings have done over the centuries. But morally speaking, we are no further along than we were 4,000 years ago. We have not advanced an iota. We're still just as violent. We're still just as greedy. We're still just as power-hungry. We're still just as deceptive and, and manipulative as human beings. Uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century, there was a great optimism among European intellectuals. There was this idea that the 20th century was finally going to be the century when human beings evolved. And there, there was a great hope that, that technology and then the Industrial Revolution was going to finally solve the problems of war and injustice and poverty. 
and, and you see this in the writings from the uh, 1880s, 1890s. But then what happens? You hit the 20th century. It's the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. You know, all war is going to be done with because you know, the Industrial Revolution has come. What are you talking about? World War I, World War II. I mean, the, the carnage of this, century, of this last century, the Holocaust under Hitler, the even bigger Holocaust under Stalin. I mean, this happened in the last century. How far have we really come, morally speaking? We haven't. And, and humanity is still a, a yard sale. Our, our sin spreads out wide before God. When we look at the church, it's a yard sale. The church has a spotted history. I mean, this is one of the reasons a lot of people don't want to learn more about Christ because the church kind of gets in the way. We look at the history of the church, even recently, and, and people say, oh, yeah, 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 I knew it. church is full of hypocrites. And I say, well, yeah, it is. It's full of sinners like me. I don't perfectly follow the Christ that I profess. Uh, the church is a yard sale. But that's why I'm a Christian. I'm not a churchian. I'm a Christian because I follow Christ. And I don't, my faith is not in the church. My faith is not in myself as a pastor. It's in Christ and his blood for me. So, so even the church is a, is a yard sale. You know, in its own way, it has such a checkered past. Because even though it's God's people, we're still sinners and we still blow it. And all our stuff is just spread out for everyone to see. Even individually, we have personal yard sales. <laughs> everyone sees them. I remember one, a, a big yard sale I, I had in college for everyone to see. Um, I live with this bunch of guys who are like brothers to me still. Just great guys. But one of them in particular was totally absent-minded. Absent-minded professor type. A brilliant guy. I think he's, he's just so brilliant. He's amazingly talented. But can't find his checkbook. Can't find his keys. Can't find his books. Always walking around his apartment. And this is my main memory of him. Walking around the apartment, muttering, looking for things. Where's my checkbook? You know, like, like we hit it or something, you know. I think we did a couple times, but you know. <laughs> just because just we knew what he was like. Where's my checkbook? You know, kicking things. Always muttering and, and stumbling around. And I remember this one night, he was just on a tirade. And, you know, just muttering. Couldn't find his stuff. And he finally goes out the door and just slams the door. He's just so mad. And we just laugh. We're like, ah! You know, we just bust into laughter. We're all laughing about him. And we start teasing him a little bit. And, and then I started saying, well, you know, ha, ha, ha. And I started making fun of him, and the guys laughed. And so you know how it is. He, people start laughing, and so you say a little more, and people laugh more. And the next thing you know, I, I mean, I was just on a roll. And I just, I, I, and it went from a, a little good humor. I, I was really saying some, some biting things about this person, some, some really cutting things about this person. And, you know, the guys kept laughing, so I just kept, you know, how it is with guys. You just keep going up and up and up. And, and, and after a while, I mean, it's like if the guy had been in the room, it would have been very offensive. It would have been very hurtful, the things I was saying. And actually, he was. He was just outside the door. And he had slammed the door and heard us laugh. He just stood there and listened. He heard everything I said. And at the end of my little dog and pony show, after the guys were laughing, the door opens, and he's standing right there. And he goes, guys, I heard everything you just said. And, you know, he was being polite. He should have just said, Jeremy, I heard everything you just said. It was like yard sale. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? What, how am I going to weasel out of that? All of my sin, the, the hurtful things I just said about one of my good friends, I just, you know, I can't hide it from anyone. Everyone's seen it. I just had to go up to the guy later, and I couldn't say anything. I just had to say, look, I'm a total jerk. You know, forgive me. I have no excuse. There's nothing I can say 
to explain my behavior. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. I mean, just, it's just a yard sale. And at different times of our lives, we, we've had yard sales. We've blown it in ways, and everybody sees it, and there's nothing you can say. <laughs> um, maybe you've been through a divorce. You know, it's, it's a very public thing. It's very painful, humiliating. Even, even if you're somewhat justified in the divorce, it's still very public and very painful. All the people who were at your wedding and cheering you on now see the thing ending. And it's very, it's painful. It's a yard sale. Or maybe you've had an unplanned pregnancy. I mean, it's tough to hide that. Or maybe you've been arrested for a DUI. It's on the public record. And you're like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, I just, I had a few drinks. I thought it was fine. Drove home, got busted. Ugh. Maybe you've been suspended from school. You know, everybody sees it. Everybody knows. And so we go through these times in life where we have these, these public failures. And sometimes, though, it's not so public. But the thing is, God sees it anyway. Even when it's private, even when my crash is on a, a side slope where there is no chairlift and there's no other skiers around, I crash, I blow it, no one sees it but God. And everything is a yard sale in his eyes. He sees it all. He can see to my innermost thoughts in my heart. And he sees how, how many t ways I've blown it in my life, how many ways I've disobeyed him. And he sees it in public and he sees it in private. You know, once upon a time, there was a, a man who had a dream. And in this dream, an angel came to him and, and had a big golden book. And the man said, what's that book? And the angel said, this is the record of your life morally. And he said, oh, well, let's see. And so the angel opens up the first page. And it's a page, and it's full of words and just all over the page. And the man says, what, what's that? And, and the angel says, these are all of the, the things that are sinful that you've done in your life. These are all the times you've broken God's commandments. These are all the different things that you've done that, that are disgraceful before God. The man is like, whew, wow. So the angel turns the next page. More words, except now the words are smaller and closer together. It's so that you can almost can't read them. The man says, what's that? He says, well, these are all the things that you've said in your life. These are the, the slanderous, biting comments you've made. These are the lies you've told. These are the angry, hurtful things you've said. The man said, whew. And then the angel says, let me show you another page. He turns the page, and, and now it's covered with words, but the words are, you know, like so small, you'd have to have a magnifying glass to read them. And they're so thick on the page that it almost, the page almost looks black because it's so covered with words. And the man says, what is this? And the angel says, these are all the sinful thoughts you've ever had. All of the lustful thoughts you've had, all of the arrogant thoughts, all of the greedy ambitions, all of the hurtful, violent thoughts you've had toward others. And they almost cover the page. And then the angel turns one last page. And it's total black. The man says, what's that? And the angel says, that's your heart. And this is where all the other stuff came from. I know this isn't great stuff to talk about, but we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with what God's Word says. The Bible is clear. Human history is clear. My personal history is clear. We are guilty sinners before God. None of us can stand before God with clean hands. All of us are guilty and vile before Him. We're objects of wrath, as it says in Ephesians. Our sin is wide. But the love of Christ is wider. The love of Christ is wider than our sin. You say, oh, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, Jesus, you've got to know about my sin. My sin is pretty wide. I mean, if you know, yeah, that book, that's me. I mean, if you knew all the things I've said and done, I mean, my sin is pretty wide. How wide is your love, Jesus? I've got to know this because 
My sin is pretty wide. Jesus says, you want to know how wide my love is? Do you want to know how wide the love of Christ is for you? I will show you how wide his love is. His love is this wide. His love is this wide. Because when Christ was nailed to the cross, he was not making a political statement to his contemporaries. He was absorbing all of the disgraceful things I've done, said, and thought against God and others. He was taking the punishment for that. On the cross, Christ was throwing himself on the grenade of my sin so that he would take the punishment instead of me. And he did it because he loved me. Because he loved me. This made me think of a great story. I'll just read this story in the the book of Luke and then we'll close. Look at the book of Luke, chapter 7. Just turn over with me. What a wonderful story this is from the ministry of Christ. It's on page 1023. 1023, Luke chapter 7. Verse 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now remember in those days when you ate at a table, you didn't sit at chairs. You laid on cushions and you laid with your, your head, you kind of leaned on your arm toward the table and your feet were out behind you. So, so a table with people dining around, it looked like a, a wheel with spokes sticking out of it because their feet were sticking out behind them. So Jesus is reclining at the table. That's important because of, of what's about to happen. Verse 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. And When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, but she is a sinner. So here you have the town floozy. <laughs> you have the prostitute in town. Everyone knows this woman. I mean, her sin is public. She, she is the biggest yard sale in town. Everyone knows that she has blown it in so many ways. They stay away from her. And everyone knows that she's lived a sinful life. This is public knowledge. And the Pharisee thinks, well, if he knew what kind of a dirt bag was touching his feet right now, He wouldn't want anything to do with this woman if he was a prophet. Well, Jesus is a prophet because look at verse 40. Jesus answered him. You know, the guy didn't say this out loud. He thought this. So Jesus answers him because he is a prophet, more than a prophet. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Bingo, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little, loves little. You notice Jesus doesn't say, 
Uh, oh, look, look, you're calling her a sinner. She's not a sinner. You're okay, I'm okay. Let's just drop this sin business. You're making people feel uncomfortable. You know, No, no, that's what our culture says. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't shy away from sin. He's like, yeah. You know, in fact, his analogy backs it up. He says, she's the one who owes 500 denarii. Yeah, she has blown it. Her sin is wide, but my love is wider. His love is wider than our sin. It's not that our sin is non-existent. It's that Christ loves us more than the width of our sin. And as this woman comes and as she repents, you know, that's what the crying and the weeping is, is. These are tears of repentance. These are tears of faith. These are, are tears that show the sincerity of what's in her heart. And there she is kneeling before Christ, loving Him, worshiping Him. And Jesus says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that same Christ is with us this morning. And his arms are still outstretched wide. Not on the cross. He's risen. But his arms are outstretched wide to embrace anyone who will come to him. No matter who you are, no matter how big your yard sale has been in your life, if you will come to Christ, his love is wider. And you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the embrace of God. And you can know the love of Christ. Let's pray. If you've never received Christ before, I'd invite you just to pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I do confess that my life is a moral yard sale. That I have sinned against you. Lord, I confess I've sinned against others. But Jesus, I believe that your love is wider than my sin. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And Jesus, I now come and weep at your feet and put my faith in you and trust you as my Savior. And Lord, we all come now and weep at the feet of Christ. Oh, his feet are so beautiful. His feet are the ones that bring us good news. It was his feet that were pierced with the nail. And Lord, we, we, we grab hold of the nail-pierced feet and we grab hold of the nail-pierced hands. And we embrace you, Christ, as our Savior and our Lord. Lord, I pray, help us to look at the cross and to really understand your love. Some of us have heard the story of the cross for 30, 40 years. God, make it ever fresh. Help us to see how great your love is for us. Lord, help us to be honest about the width of our sin. And then help us by the Spirit to see the greatness of Christ's love. Lord Jesus, help us as we wait here on the summit to see how great your love is. Lord, help us to experience heaven on earth as we look at the love of Christ. Christ, I thank you that even now you stand before the Father with nail wounds in your hands, with nail wounds in your feet, with a spear wound in your side, all as evidences of your great love for us. God, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.